The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old is in the New Testament revealed. That is a quote of St. Augustine. Yeah, there's a slide for that. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. The Old is in the New Testament revealed. If this is true, it begs a big question. How do we read the Bible? How do we interpret the Bible? Do we take it allegorically? Do we take it literally? <coughs> well, we do take it literally. Most of the books of the Bible are written as actual history. There are places in the Bible that are obvious allegory. They're obviously trying to use something as a picture or something like that to give a certain point. But most of the Bible is written very straightforwardly as, as history, as, as, as just direct text. So we take a look, and there's a lot of people that want to take the whole thing as allegory, and I think they, they get into some shaky ground you know, with that. But there are those places, and I'll give you a couple of examples. Like in the book of Song of Solomon, when the bridegroom says to the bride, your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep, right? Can you imagine, guys, <clears throat> telling that to your ladies? Go ahead, try it. See how far that gets you. Evidently, this went a long way about 4,000 years ago. <clears throat> But there are places in the Bible that are actual, actual literal histories. In fact, most of the Bible is literal history. I don't know if you're familiar with the name Chuck Missler, but Chuck Missler was, has been a uh, Bible teacher for many, many years. And in his Bible research, he has discovered and documented around 200 figures of speech in the Bible. The Holy Spirit used figures of speech to communicate the word. Question is, what is a figure of speech? Well, let's ask like an English teacher, right? Well, let's just look at some of these. A figure of speech. One is a simile. And a simile is basically a resemblance. An example of that is when, in, and we'll get to this later in Genesis, when it is said, Esau was born and he came out like a hairy garment, Right? This is, you know, and this is, this, is a, this is a simile, right? I mean, he literally wasn't like a hairy garment, but evidently, you know, there was a resemblance. And also there's an allegory, which is a comparison by representation, kind of like a metaphor. Jacob's prophecy, Jacob has a prophecy over his 12 sons. It's in chapter 49 in Genesis when we'll get there. And in the text of Genesis 49, um, there's obvious kind of allegory that kind of in the prophecies to bring about a point of what is going to happen. And one of those is Judah is a lion's whelp. He lays down as a lion. And so this is an example of an allegory. Then there is one called a hypocastasis. And this is an implied resemblance 
or representation. And you see this in the text of scripture in the book of Matthew when Jesus says, uh, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You know, so obviously there's not a plank in your brother's eye or your own eye, but uh, in a hypocastasis, it is an implied resemblance or representation. And then there's what we call an analogy. This is a, a resemblance in some particulars between things otherwise unlike. And then we come to one last one. We're not going to go through all 200 of the uh, types of speech in the Bible, all right, figures of speech. The last one is what's called a type. And this is one that as a Christian who's serious about understanding the word, you need to know what a type is. A type is a figure or example of something that comes in the future. So it's something, and it can be actually historical things that happen that can then become pictures of things that are going to happen or do happen as scripture, as time plays out. And so it is a type. A type is what we might call a model. When an engineer designs something of intricate detail, they usually would make a model of it first. Before you actually make the, the real thing, you make a model of it first. So all the car uh, makers do this. They make what they call prototypes, right? So they'll make a prototype, and then eventually they'll make the actual one. And so I found, this is an old picture, but, uh, well, it's about 13 years old, believe it or not. Um, but it's a picture of a futuristic car. I don't know if we've seen these yet on the road. But if you remember the movie I, Robot, anybody remember that? That was a really cool movie. Um, and one of the reasons why I liked it is because the robots in the movie were called Nestor. <laughs> true, true, true. Look it up. You look it up right now on Google. They were called Nestor Class 5s. Okay? <clears throat> so cool thing. So anyways... So this was the car that Will Smith drove around in that movie. So anyway, so you have a prototype and a type. Siri is paying attention to the message. Aren't you glad we live in the year 2018? It's so fun. So tonight we're going to take a look at Genesis 22, which is both a history of actual events and a type of something future that comes and is played out also in scripture. And so it's a, it's a literal history of actual events and it's a, it becomes a type of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in fact, I see it as one of the most incredible types in the entire Bible, of all the types that are in the Bible. And there's a lot of different typology that happens in the Bible. And this is perhaps, perhaps the most incredible one. And so let's take a look at this this event in the life of Abraham and see how clearly that God laid out the gospel in advance, 2,000 years in advance of Jesus Christ coming to the earth and giving his life on Calvary. So let's take a look at that. If you're uh, taking notes tonight, the first point is this, God tests Abraham. Let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 22. It says this, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, 
and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the chapter opens up with God testing Abraham. It says, after these things. After these things is actually kind of an interesting phrase that happens throughout the Bible. In fact, uh, you'll notice it in Revelation chapter 4. You have Revelations chapter 2 and 3 that are the seven letters to seven churches. And, and some interpret, one of the levels of interpretation of understanding those two chapters is, is, is that you see uh, the entirety of church history played out in the seven churches. And so then you get to chapter four and you see this phrase, after this or after these things. In the Greek, it's metatauta. Here we have after these things. What things? Well, God had finally given Abraham the promise, the promise of the son that was to be born of Sarah. And so Abraham uh, is given the son Isaac. Sarah finally becomes pregnant and we talked about it last Week She gives birth to the baby, and then, of course, last chapter, the, the whole weaning and the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael and that whole thing. After these things, God tested Abraham. It seems that many times the Lord tests us after he seems to be bringing about his plan in our lives. Maybe you have prayed for something in your life and you've believed God for a particular promise, something you believe that God was going to do in your life, and then he begins to do that, and then there's also a time of testing, a time of, of, of kind of purification, really, a kind of trying, if you will. And this is uh, true for Abraham in this particular place. Abraham was tested by God. God called to Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. Here I am. This is good. If God calls you, this is what you say, right? right? If God calls you, this is what you say. Abraham was called by God, and he said, here I am. This is also reminiscent of another place in Scripture. You'll remember Samuel and Eli. Remember when Samuel was given, dedicated to God, given to God, the service of God, uh, by his mother, Hannah, and, uh, and there he was in the, in the temple, and he heard something. He heard someone calling him, and he kept on going to Eli. Hey, did you hear this? Did you hear some, somebody's calling? Somebody's calling. And this happened three times, and finally Eli said, look, if he calls out again, just say, here I am. And so here Abraham, the Lord calls Abraham. He says, here I am. And it's good to be listening. When the, test, when the testing comes, because we need to be listening to what God wants to do in our lives, and sometimes testing comes, and we're listening to every other source. We're listening to every other thing that's happening, and we, we need to be listening for the voice of the Lord. Amen? So God instructs Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering. He tells him to go to the land of Moriah and offer him on one of the mountains there in the land of Moriah. Now, a couple interesting things about this. Let's look at that verse again, just so we got it. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. A couple interesting things here in, it, in verse two. First, God says, take your son, 
your only son. So you're reading this and you're going, wait a second. His only son? Well, that's not true, right? Well, according to the plan of God, according to the promise of God, there's only one son of the promise. You see, remember in chapter 16, when Abraham and Sarah got into the flesh and got into the whole thing with Hagar, which produced Ishmael, that was a work of the flesh. That was a work of their doing. But you see, God had a plan to bring about a son, to bring about a son of the promise who would be heir and would be that one that would carry on the lineage of Abraham who would become the father of a great nation and and the father of many nations. And so, according to the promise of God, Isaac was his only son. And so Isaac was the son of the promise. And this this is a theme that Paul picks up on in Galatians 4, and we touched on that a little bit last week. The second interesting thing is that, uh, well, before I tell you what it is, I want to remind, you know, does anyone know what hermeneutics is? You heard that word, hermeneutics? Yes, it's a word. It means the art and science of biblical interpretation, the art and science of biblical interpretation. And so there are certain rules for interpreting scripture, and one of the rules is what's called the law of first mention. When you're wondering what there is about a particular subject or a particular uh, meaning or a particular thing, it's good to go and find the first place that that is talked about in Scripture, the first uh, time that that particular thing is mentioned. It's called the law of first mention. And it, it will help you in, um, in understanding uh, certain things within the Scripture. This is the first place in the scripture where love is mentioned. Really? You mean we've had 21 chapters and love has not been mentioned? Yes. This is the first place that love is mentioned. Take your son Isaac, whom you love. God is mentioning Abraham's love for his son Isaac. What you see here is a picture. It becomes a picture for us of the father's love for the son. We're gonna see as this unfolds that you see Abraham becomes a picture of the father. Isaac becomes a picture of the son, Jesus. And here we see Abraham loves Isaac. And we come to understand that within the Godhead, what we would call the Godhead, the father loves the son. Now, why is this so profound to understand? Because you will never fully understand love until you understand that it first originated in the Godhead. The reason why there is love at all is because there was first love within the Godhead that the Father loved the Son, okay? And Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15, verse nine, when he's talking with the disciples, you'll see it on the screen, it says this, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. What's, what's that? As Jesus, who's, who is the son, is saying, as the father loved me, I have loved you. And so what Jesus is declaring to the disciples there and to us is you see that there's a pattern of love. 
The reason why there is love to begin with is because within the Godhead, we, we long for love, we long for community because there's first the community of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here Jesus is saying to the disciples, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. And so there's a pattern of love. We don't, you know, we follow, if we're going to love, if we're going to understand love, we have to first understand the pattern. The Father loved the Son, and then the Son loved us. And of course, the Father loved us by sending the Son. Amen? So it also, in that sense, kind of prefigures John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So you think of Abraham's love for Isaac. Then think of the father's love for the son. And you can begin to think about God's love for the people of the world. Think about how much the father loved the son. And then Jesus says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Powerful, powerful. So you think of the Father's love for the Son and you begin to think of the, the awesome love that the Father has for the people of the world. If you're taking notes, the second point tonight is this, a three-day journey. Let's go back to our text. Pick it up, verse three. It says this, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So, what this section, this little section of verses here, it describes what is a three-day journey for Abraham. He wasn't just told, take Isaac, okay, I want you to offer your son, your only son, whom you love, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me, okay? Just go out back and take, just do it. He said, no, I want you to do this at a particular location, there's an, there's an exact location, there's a particular location that I want you to go to to do this. And that location from where he was, which happened to be Beersheba, that's where we left him off, he's in Beersheba, and he's going to take a three-day journey to the land of Moriah, which is also, we come to find out that that's Jerusalem. So he's gonna take a three-day journey from Beersheba up to Jerusalem. I've got a couple maps here for you, just as visuals, okay? When, when you, if anybody, anybody grow up in church? Anybody grow up in church? Yeah, if you weren't paying attention and you were looking for something to read or do, you read the maps in the back of the Bible. Trust me, I know about this. I know those maps very well. I know all the allotment of the 12 tribes of, 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 of Israel. I know exactly where they all are because I study those up. So anyways, you see these little pin drops here. You have Beersheba there in the south of Israel, and then you have Jerusalem, which is the, the pin drop up there, the little body of water. To the right is the Dead Sea, to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a three-day journey. Now I pulled this up. Go to the next slide. 
This is what it looks like on Google Maps. Okay, <laughs> I, had to, I had to bring this up into 20, 2018, amen? Now, Abraham did not have the benefit of Google uh, Maps and his you know, I, iPhone. Okay, Lord, you want me to go to the land of Moriah? Let me just put that real quick. And no, he just had to go. And, uh, and so it was a three-day journey. You can see from the map, it was a three-day journey. Now, the, the, the idea that it's a three-day journey this also becomes a significant part of the type, the model that is being played out in the actual historical events that are playing out here in Genesis chapter three. You have to, you have to understand the Jewish mind to get this, to understand this. God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering and then to go to a specific place that was three days away. So when was Isaac dead to him? In the Jewish mind, he was dead when God gave the command. And so he took Isaac, the three-day journey, up to the land of Moriah. So for three days, Isaac was dead to Abraham. Keep this in mind. Abraham told his two young men, stay here, the boy and I, and I, I, I'm just going to say boy because I don't, lad, I don't, I don't talk like that. I mean, you know, there's people that talk like this still, I guess. They're over there across the pond, you know, but I don't really use the word lad. Um, but anyway, so he took the boy and he said, you know, the boy and I are going to worship and we'll come back to you. So they had reached the town of what was called Salem, we know it as Jerusalem. It's the area, the land of Moriah. But Abraham went up further from where he left the two men. And so I have another, take the Google Maps away. Okay, there's another map here. This is a topographic map, or slightly. You can see it from above. And I'm gonna point some things out. You have the city, the city of Jerusalem, and then you had, of course, at, at this time, there's, there's nothing there, right? I mean, the, can you imagine? When, when, when Abraham gets there, I mean, this is, you know, completely rural, you know, it's just a mountain, the Mount of Moriah. And so you had the city, and then up further, you had what would later become um, known as when there was the Canaanites who were in the land who built the town of Salem, and there was a place on the mountain called, it became the threshing floor, where the wheat was threshed out. And this was the same place that later uh, would be purchased by David and then uh, his son Solomon actually built the tabernacle or the temple on the exact land of the threshing floor that was there. So that became the Temple Mount. And this is the, um, the, the kind of the southern end of what was the Mount of Moriah. And there was this kind of lower peak, the Temple Mount, and then there was kind of an upper peak. So that you have a ridge line here. You have the Mount Moriah. So you have the Mount where the Temple Mount. So if you look at Jerusalem, if you pull it up on your phone or whatever, you will see a picture of Jerusalem. You will see, more than likely, you'll immediately see a picture looking from the east, from Mount of Olives, to the west, to Jerusalem, and you see the wall and the Temple Mount, and what do you see on top? The Dome of the Rock, okay? It's uh, a Muslim 
it's a it's a spot uh, that is controlled by Islam currently, and it is the Dome of the Rock, and and the reason why is because the the Muslims have a very different view from what we're talking about tonight in Genesis 22. They have a completely different view of what happened on that spot, but we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that. So then just up north, further up the ridgeline, you have the, the location, they call it Gordon's Calvary, but it's actually, if you go to Jerusalem, this is the spot that most people believe to be the spot of Golgotha. Okay, so you have all this right on the same ridgeline of Mount Moriah, okay? So I wanted you to see that so you understand this, the, the different peaks, the different ridgeline. And you can go ahead and take that down. So this is the location of the threshing floor, the future temple, and Golgotha where Jesus would be crucified. So Abraham takes his son to offer him to God in this location that 2,000 years later, God the Father would offer his son as a sacrifice for the world, for the sins of the world, on the exact same location. So you see in the historical events of Genesis 22, God is putting together the prototype, the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, the next point is this. The sacrifice of Isaac is a picture of the cross. Let's keep going in the chapter. Pick it up, verse six. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father, And he said, here I am, my son. And then he said, look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the, the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided." So Abraham, so the sacrifice of Isaac becomes a picture of the cross of Christ. Abraham takes the wood of the sacrifice and he lays it on Isaac. Did you catch that? He took the wood of the sacrifice and he laid it on Isaac. In other words, Isaac bore the wood for the burnt offering up to the peak of Moriah. And you see the picture. 
of Jesus who carried the cross. He carried a cross to Golgotha, at least some of the way, until he was so weary that Simon, a man named Simon, was called into action to carry the cross of Christ the rest of the way. Now, as they are going to the peak, Isaac calls to his father. He says, Father, Father. He says, I'm here. Isaac asks him, I see the fire. In the ancient world, you had little, they had, I guess, constructed little flint devices or whatever for for starting fires. So he says, I see the fire. I see the wood. But where's the sacrifice? I mean, we're going all the way up here. I see that you got the wood, you got the fire. There's no sacrifice. And then you need to look closely at verse eight at what Abraham answers him. Abraham says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. This is the way that it is translated in most of the English translations. God will provide for himself a sacrifice. In the original Hebrew, it actually reads this way. God will provide himself a sacrifice. God will provide himself a sacrifice. So we see the picture even becoming more clear. Amen? God will provide himself the lamb. God the son became the lamb of the sacrifice. And then it says, and the two of them went together. So after Abraham tells him, gives them this explanation, the two of them went together. And so in the, in the, in the Hebrew, this actually kind of is the idea that they went in agreement. They proceeded with agreement after this little discussion, after this little inquiry that Isaac makes. It says, and the two of them went together. They went in agreement to go to the place of the sacrifice. And so you see that the father and the son were in agreement. The father sent the son into the world. But you remember that the son submitted himself to the father's will. You remember that there, were, there was a, a human nature that the, that the son took on a human nature. When he took on flesh, he took on a human nature. And in the Lord's human nature, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. You remember on the night that he was that, that, that he celebrated Passover with his disciples on the night that he was arrested. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said, Father, Father, if, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so he went in agreement. The two went in agreement to the place. And can you see the son going to the place of sacrifice in agreement with the father, the will of the father? So the son submitted himself to the will of the father. And they came to the exact spot that God told him. Abraham and Isaac came to the exact spot. And I'm one of these people that I, I, I believe that it was literally probably the exact spot that Jesus died on the cross. I, 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 I believe because when I look at the precision of scripture, when I look at the way that the Lord lays stuff out in scripture and, 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 and there's stuff that you can get into that will literally blow your mind of how precise and how exact that God has laid these things out. And it's absolutely incredible. And I believe that God took them to the exact spot and, and 
you know, when God builds a model, there's no crudity involved. It's, it's, it's a great model. I remember when um, in the movie Back to the Future, remember when, when, when um, you know, Marty ended up in 1955 and he found Doc, the 1955 Doc, and he had to, you know, get back to the future. And so Doc created this whole model, right? Remember of the model of the, uh, of the, you know, Hill Valley, the little town with the clock tower and the, how it was all going to say. And so he comes back to the, the place and, and, and Doc says, please excuse the crudity of the model. I didn't have time to build it to scale. <laughs> Remember this? Come on, people, stay with me, all right? You know? There's no crudity in, in, Christ, in God's model, in the Father's model. It's, it's picture perfect, really. So Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, and he takes his knife, and he's about to kill him for the sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord, now remember, we've talked about the identity of this angel of Yahweh. Talked about this a lot throughout the study in Genesis. The, the really a theophany, I believe a, it's, a, it's literally the sun um, in, in a, not in a human natured form as he would later come incarnate and taking on human flesh, but it was the angel of Yahweh. Because he speaks to Abraham and he says, don't harm the boy, do not lay your hand upon the boy. So the Lord stops him. He, Abraham was willing to carry it out, but the angel of Yahweh, God, really, acknowledges this. He says, you have not withheld your son from who? From me. Well, who gave the command? The angel of Yahweh. You have not withheld your, your son from me. So... The only difference between this moment in the story where we are, the, the, the history, the only difference between this and what actually happened about 2,000 years after this, 1,800 to 2,000, depending upon when you date uh, the personage of, uh, of, of Abraham, okay? The only difference in the gospel here is what Paul pointed out to the Romans in Romans chapter eight, verse 32. See here in Genesis 22, the father spared the son, right? In that historical happening of this event. But what Paul says in Romans eight, verse 32, put it up on the screen. He said this, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What's that? Him who did not spare his own son. So the father sent the son to Moriah, to that place, to go all the way, to give his life fully for the sins of the world for us. So then Abraham looks up. After he was stopped by the angel of Yahweh, he looks up and he sees a ram caught by his horns in the thicket. On this occasion, God provided a ram, right? A ram caught, caught by his horns. 2,000 years later, 
he provided a lamb. Genesis 22, he provided a ram. 2,000 years later, on Golgotha, he provided a lamb, a lamb for the sacrifice, the lamb of God. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus? It's recorded for us in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. You'll see it on the screen. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And it is said, and it is repeated to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In the mountain of Yahweh, it shall be provided. Jehovah Jireh is God who sees, who provides. It will be provided by God in the mountain. Wow. Can you believe this, what Abraham is calling the mountain? He's the God who sees, the God who provides, the God who, who looks down upon us, the, guy, the God who sees your condition, the God who saw my condition, the condition of every single person across the earth, and he provided by sending his son as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Now in verses 15 through 17, God reiterates his covenant with Abraham and his son, and, and his, uh, the promise and his son being the heir of the promise. Amen? So let's read that real quick. Pick it up, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants of the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so Abraham returned to his young man and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. Okay, two more points and I'm done. Are you still with me? Raise your hand if you're still with me. Raise your hand if you if you fade it out and then you're back. Okay, all right. <clears throat> Two more points and we're done. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. The question is this. Here's the question I want to ask. How was Abraham saved? Abraham is called the father of the faith, right? How was he saved? How was it that Abraham was saved the same way that you and I are saved. Amen? He believed and was obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You said, what? He never knew Jesus. This was 2,000 years before Jesus. Trust me, he knew Jesus. Trust me, Abraham knew Jesus and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ because we just witnessed it. We just witnessed it in this chapter that we just read. He obeyed the command to sacrifice his son Isaac. From the time he received the command to the, to the time God intervened at the time of the sacrifice was three days. How long was Isaac dead to Abraham? Three days. And so he believed, by definition, he believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You say, how? How? This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. Look at it. I'll have it on the screen. Hebrews 11, 
beginning of verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your, your seed shall be called. Look at this verse 19. This is it. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. What's this? This is what the writer of Hebrews is telling him, that, that Abraham believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he believed that although God had called him to sacrifice his son Isaac and give his only son whom he loved and took a three-day journey by which he was dead for three days, he believed that even if he got there and had to carry it out, that God was able to raise him from the dead because he was the son of the promise. He was the son that was going to be the one who would be the, the, the continuation of the promise that God was going to make Abraham the father of many nations. Folks, listen. Folks, listen. If you can't get excited about this, I mean, I, I need to come down there. I, need, I don't know what those things are that they have in the ER. Yes. You know? We're going to shock you into this. No, we're not. The Lord is going to do it. Amen? So Abraham believed... In the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is the whole gospel. Amen? This is what we have to believe. This is what we're told by the apostles, that the, the gospel that was delivered to them. That if you believe in your heart, if you confess the Lord Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved. This is, this is the faith that God is looking for. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ like Abraham did? Believing in the resurrection is the key to receiving Christ and believing the gospel. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a good man. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a good prophet. It's not, a, it's not enough to believe that this person over here said good things about him or this book over here said good things about him. What is enough is what God asks is, say, is to believe him, to trust him, to do what Abraham did. And he counted his belief, he counted his faith as, and counted it to him as righteousness. Amen? And that's what the Lord does when we believe the gospel. Wow, this is the gospel. That even though you were, that you were in your sins and apart from God and completely separated from God, if you believe the gospel, you're completely set free and brought into everlasting life with, with the Lord. And it's incredible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Now, just one more thing. How are we doing on time? We're doing great. One more thing before we get to the very end. How does the chapter end? How does Genesis 22 end? It ends with this little section about the children who were born to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Nahor had eight sons. Let's look at it and read it. Pick it up, verse 20. 
Now it came to pass after these things that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also had borne children to your brother Nahor, whose his firstborn, Booz, whose Booz, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kesad, Hazo, Pildash, Jiplaf, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight, Milcah bore to eight, Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Reumah, also bore Tabak, Gaham, Thahash, and Mahakah. So what's this little conclusion? It's almost like this little, it's like here we went through this like, you know, this section of scripture that could be a movie. And then we get to this little, it's like almost an appendix. You know how like when you get to a climax of the movie, it's the, the movie's kind of building towards this climax, right? And it's building, and it gets there, and then you're, you're still like, okay, well, what, what happens next? Where, where does this go from here? This is exactly what this is like. It's like kind of like after the climax of the movie, then you like, wait a second, here's where it's going. This talks to us, this little section about the birth of Rebecca, who is who? Is the woman that becomes Isaac's bride. So here, almost as an appendix of this chapter, and I believe a huge part of it, because it's the birth of Rebecca, the bride of Isaac, who becomes a type of the bride of Christ. You do not see Isaac from, the to- from, from this time that he was sacrificed, where we just left off with Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, you do not see Isaac again in Genesis until Abraham sends Eleazar to find him a bride and to bring him back. And we'll see it in a couple weeks here. Isaac will be out in the field and he'll see his bride. And you see the picture. Abraham's servant, whose name is Eleazar, which means the comforter, by the way. <laughs> so the father sends the Holy Spirit to get a bride for the son. Amen? Amen? <laughs> Abraham is a type of the father. Isaac is a type of the son. Jesus, Eleazar is the type of the Holy Spirit. Rebecca is the type of the church, the bride of Christ. So there you have it. The New Testament is in the Old Testament, concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And this all happened 2,000 years before Christ and was written 1,600 years before Christ, or about 1,400, by Moses in the book of Genesis. Powerful stuff, amen? And I want to give you the opportunity to believe upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and to keep believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ.